Anger can't live alone. And real maturity allows challenge. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, the podcast for the pastor theologian. You can find us at pathological.com, pathological.net, or toddlittleton.net. We're a podcast that explores the intersection of life, faith, and thinking theologically, what we used to call theological reflection. We talk with pastors and authors and practitioners who uh, have something to say about the experiences of life that we face in our cultural context. That is our current cultural context, always thinking through the lens of the gospel, the good news of uh, God and Jesus Christ. And... um, Always happy to be a resource for those who lead churches, whether uh, by paid staff position or as a, we call a lay leader, or those who are just interested in that subject and how it might get worked out in conversation. Today on the podcast, I have my friend Scott Curry back on the podcast. We're making this a monthly uh, uh, part of the podcast. Call it uh, pastoral uh uh, theologian through the lens of the Old Testament. Uh, Scott is working on his PhD in Old Testament, uh, particularly on uh, Job. And so our first episode will link to, uh, took us to consider uh, Job and suffering, uh, the experiences of life as they relate to suffering, how we understand them and think through them and that sort of thing. Along the way, we uh, said we'd get back together and talk about anger and forgiveness. So that's what we talk about today, and I hope you will uh, share the podcast, you'll write the podcast, you'll review the podcast, and that'll help us uh, maybe uh, get found by those who uh, would be looking for this sort of resource. And uh, and so uh, if you have a question, if you have a comment, if you have a subject you'd like us to tackle, um, please uh, send an email to uh, doc.todd at gmail.com. That's D-O-C period T-O-D-D at gmail.com. And uh, we'll see if we can't get an author. I've uh, got a couple of exciting guests upcoming, and I'll let you know who they are on the backside. So for now, here is my conversation with Scott Curry uh, on the subject of anger and forgiveness in Job. Today on the podcast, I'm glad to have uh, my friend Scott Curry back. We uh, took some time with Job uh, a, a few weeks ago, and we just decided that we would make this a regular thing. Lots to, that goes on in Job. And... Um, and so today, a couple of themes we want to pick up are uh, the themes of uh, uh, anger and forgiveness. So, Scott, I'm glad to have you on today. Todd, it's great to be on again. I would uh, ditto what you have said. I uh, likewise consider you to be a good friend. I appreciate very much your ministry. I'm excited today. I think that Job has more than we can say today about pastoral ministry, about how personal emotions can be and how they can lead us in ways of which we are not even aware. Yeah, one thing that uh, I, I recall, I, you know, called to mind uh, thinking about anger, uh, because, you know, there are a host of uh, events going on um, in, in social uh, locations where it, it seems easy to gather a, a, a group outraged about something, angered about something. And I thought about, uh, and, and some of our listeners may, may be too young for this, but uh, it would give them a chance to hit the Google. Um, so back in the 70s, Eddie Childs 
um, had a, had a rough start, rough go hitchhiked to Oklahoma, got his, uh, degree in petroleum engineering from the university of Oklahoma, made his way back to Texas. And, uh, he worked in, uh, uh, oil industry for a bit and then started his own company. I believe it was two trucks and, and turned into a, uh, uh, a, a pretty big business. In fact, it was big enough that, uh, he had a, uh, uh, commercial that said, uh, if you don't have an oil well, get one. And, um, and then uh, from there, he o- was owner of the Texas Rangers. Somewhere along the way, he uh, began doing radio spots, radio commercials. And when he was finished, uh, he's a small government guy. Uh, and he, when he finished, he would sign off with, I'm Eddie Childs, and I'm mad as hell. <laughs> well, you know, that, that, that was the era of the uh, uh, bumper sticker boom. And uh, you still see some that was really seventies. I mean, bumpers were plastered with, uh, you know, messages. We didn't have internet. We didn't have websites. We didn't have, you know, uh, um, apps and that sort of thing. So uh, bumper stickers became the, uh, some of those uh, identity markers. And uh, the, the bumper sticker that took off was I'm mad too, Eddie. And I thought when you had mentioned anger uh, as one of the themes in Job, I thought maybe uh, rather than give folks a pass and think, oh, I'm not angry about anything, we probably ought to pause and reflect that most days there's something that angers us. And uh, if right now you are, you're listening and you're not a little bit outraged about um, what has come of the Me Too campaign, angered at how women have been treated, if, if you're not just a little bit angered uh, that we've got some dreamers that are, are, are actually at risk from, uh, to no fault of their own, of remaining in the United States. They don't, they don't know any other country, any other place, and yet they're, they're now ping pong, political ping pong balls. If you're not angered uh, about, and then you fill in the blank, there is plenty to be angry about. So, uh, Scott, I, I wonder, um, let's, let's locate the let's locate the center point for Job's anger. So if we're going to talk about anger in Job, um, get us there. What is the, what you, do you find to be the key components to Job's anger? Well, I think the segue is actually pretty easy to make. It's very simply this. Job is having to do what we have to do every day, and that is he's having to learn to live with God. Now, let me let me make sure that I point out how important this is, because what I'm finding, and I, I don't want to get political, I'm going to let you do that again. I will say, though, that I, if we had bumper stickers like that today, I think it'd be very easy to transform those into Facebook posts, and I think people would do it, because it's almost like when people say, I'm mad too, Eddie, it's almost like they were waiting, and you're right, it took off. They were waiting for somebody to say it. And what I see happening now with with people in general, and I want to talk without defining it, I want to talk about the religious right. One of the things that I see happening is, is that people are getting so angry about things that they are getting to the place where they are denying the very thing they're supposed to be defending. Now, let's talk about that for just a moment when, for example, you talk about Scripture. If you want to use terminology, I don't like terminology because I think um, 
I think we define these terms differently. And so therefore we're both trying to talk, we're talking, we're talking over each other. We're not having a conversation because nobody's listening. But we say things like inerrant, we say things like infallible, uh, and we say things like authority. Well, the truth of the matter is I have watched people, perhaps you have as well, I have seen them enraged. I have seen them embittered as they attempt to defend the authenticity of Scripture. So what I'm trying to say is I have watched them deny the very thing they're supposed to be defending because Scripture is very clear as to what humility and the Spirit of Christ would look like in that particular situation. And so what I'm trying to say is this. There is no anger like a anger that is bathed in religion and calls itself righteous indignation. There is no anger like that. And if you will watch what we have happening so many times as people defend, whether they're defending the Bible or they're defending God, here is one of the places where I think we have to be very careful. Our capacity to want to run in and rescue God has put us in peril. We want to domesticate God. We believe that because we have insight through Scripture, the Holy Spirit, whatever the case may be, therefore we have a case. And so often we have so missed it that we get to the place where we are angry and we don't even know it. Now, let me continue for just a moment here, and I'm going to try to wrap up this particular context. But what I mean by angry and don't even know it, uh, you even mentioned beforehand when we started that if you're not angry about some of the things that are going on, then you've evidently checked out or whatever the case may be. Well, we have conversations with ourselves every day. Psychologists, psychiatrists call it self-talk. And it is something of which many of us are not even aware that we are thousands of words a minute able to declare what we believe to be reality to ourselves and we don't even know what's happening. All the while, that anger is transforming us into something of which we are unaware because our self-talk is so negative. It is so bad. There is such, there is so much input today. It's everywhere. Uh, I think, I think that the internet is an absolutely wonderful tool. However, it's like anything else until we learn where the boundaries need to be, we're going to misuse it. Television, whatever the case may be. So here's my point with the negative input input that's coming in on a daily basis, sometimes on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, uh, allow me to chase a rabbit for just a moment. I had an older couple in Sunday school this past week, and, and one individual said, well, no, I, I, don't, I don't really watch much news, and so I don't think that affects me. To which his wife responded, well, you do watch a lot of news. I don't know what you're saying. Now, this is in a class, you know, this is public, and so the gentleman well, I do not watch a lot of news. 
I watch it in the morning before I go to work. I watch it at noon when I come home. I watch it right <laughs> and I watch it right after I go to bed. <coughs> well, at that particular point, as you well know, he had lost the battle. So all of this input develops a self-talk. This self-talk most of the time is something of which we are unaware and we carry it with us everywhere it, we, we go. It rents out space in our heads and it really does ma- manipulate our thinking and our emotions and eventually we become something we never thought we would become. Yeah, if I could, uh, there are a couple things out of that. It, is it is that... Um, uh, I've got a friend. I'm I'm, I'm working through his book. He, it, one form of it was his his dissertation, and then he rewrote it kind of for more of a lay audience. And and uh, so I'm kind of working through both of those and bouncing them off each other. And it's taken me longer than I thought. But when you talk about self talk, that's that is the activity of the unconscious at work. And right. and and what happens is we don't we don't have or we we need to discover. Um, the mechanisms that help us um, uh, uh, come become aware of what you described. So if we have something going on about which we're, we don't even know we've become angry about a thing, we need something in place in our lives um, where, where we can kind of uh, be helped to see where someone might say to us, you're, you're really angry about something. Um, normally that's going to trigger some defense, you know, defensiveness, but if we are working toward becoming self-aware, we got to give someone permission to say to us, Hey, there's something there that's, uh, uh, you're angry about something and I can't quite put my finger on. I'm not sure you can, would you like to talk or, you know, point someone in the direction where there's help. The, the second thing is, is when I, I think you have hit a, a nerve when you, when you talk about, uh, an anger that is predicated on a felt need to defend God, we then do think that our our words, our actions are justified as righteous, even though the means by which we communicate that is unrighteous. That's right. And, and so I, I think the, you know, the, the quick for me has become, um, it's not my job to defend God. Um, and, and I think you had a great point that it's often overlooked is, is that the minute I begin to defend God, what I'm really defending is my vision of God. And so that I then commodify God or I domesticate, as you put it, or I box God in and say, I need to protect this vision of God. And what we don't realize that we're saying is I need to defend myself. Yes. And, and because what we've done is we've projected onto God this image that we have, and we're afraid that if somehow that I- image or vision, it gets ruptured, then I don't know where I'm going to be or what I'm going to do. And and so we spend a, a lot of emotional energy. Like you said last time we talked, you, you, you grant some real estate to things and thoughts that don't that, that take up so much space, you don't have really an opportunity to get anywhere else. Well, let's let me jump in here, Todd, yeah. because I I don't want to forget this. Let's let's cut to the chase real quick. Like what you said, this. How about this? In the context of self-talk, let's remember something. Anger cannot live alone. Yes. Okay. It cannot live alone. And what I'm saying is, without the superstructure of the nasty self-talk, without the internal uh, internalization. Uh, the internal dialogue that is so negative, 
anger would not exist. If you you can play the game this way, ask yourself this question. I think this is helpful. All right. Uh, what I would like for you to do is get angry about something without thinking any angry thoughts. Right. <laughs> you can't do it. Right. Your anger cannot live alone. And so when you talk in those terms, then I do think that provides a bit of help for people asking ourselves, okay, do I have an internal dialogue about something of which I'm unaware? Is it negative? Well, okay, ask yourself this question. As I'm driving down the road, as I am, uh, you know, by myself, as I'm uh, in my house and I have what we might own time, in my mind, is there something that I am having to find? Mm-hmm. Not something that I've done necessarily, but something uh, on the world platform. Is there something I've seen on the news? Now, there's nothing wrong with thinking about things, but when we get to the place where our internal dialogue keeps hitting the rewind button, I know I'm talking cassette tapes here, but it <laughs> keeps hitting the rewind button and we play this thing over. And as we play it over, we're, de- we're developing our arguments. Then what we've done now is we have crossed a threshold into now we are uh, really finding ourselves in, in a context like this, we are obsessing. And there's a difference. There's a difference between thinking and obsessing. And if you bring that, you just mentioned, uh, playing off of what I said regarding God and we're afraid of this slippery slope situation. And so we've got to throw God, a, somehow we've got to throw him a life, a life ring because it looks like God is going under. Man, and if I don't defend him and then we feel vindicated because it has a religious feel to it. And that makes it okay. Well, think Job gets it. And he gets it in chapter three. Let's, let's just give, give ourselves this example as we move forward. How many of us as pastors would feel comfortable and confident standing up in our pulpits on a Sunday morning and saying, I am so mad. I wish I was an abortion. Right. Right. I don't know that we would get by with that. I'm not too sure I would want to do it too often where I am. Furthermore, if that's not enough, Job makes sure in chapter three that he covers all the bases and says, well, okay, while I'm spewing here, Let me also make sure that you understand that if it couldn't have happened while I was in the womb, then why could I not have died immediately after birth? Mm -hmm. All right. So either way, Job makes his point. Here it is. He says, let the day perish on which I was to be born. The night which said a boy is conceived. May that day be darkness. Now watch that in verse 4 because now we have trespassed backwards into the theology of creation. Let that day be darkness. What Hmm. you're asking for here is an uncreation. His inability to get his head around this thing is so... um, it, it, it is so painful. Hmm. It is so new. It is, it is not something with which we deal every day. And it does hit the point. We had better not believe in the caricature of God 
that is so often created. We better look for the face of God just to know him. I don't need his hands always, just God, give give me, give me, give me. I know with my kids, that used to get old. Dad, can I have? Well, I adopted the administrator's response. No. Now go away. (laughs) But you think about that now, God and his children, and we're always saying, give me, give me, give me, give me, give me. That anger there, before Job can get to a place of peace, he's got to find God's face. Mm -hmm. He's got to find his face. You know, um, I, I've, I've uh, over some years, I, I was uh, doing some work with a couple, uh, and I was actually uh, um, more of a playing more of a pastoral role for in concert with a therapist. They they wanted both of us involved, and so so you know they gave permission for us to collaborate to try to help them. And um, when I got to talking about the, their particular circumstances, anger was really a serious issue uh, for both, which is often the case. And in talking to my therapist um, friend, he said, um, the root of anger is fear. Mm-hmm. And he said, so if you, if you find someone who's angry, the taproot, that is what it's reaching down and is fueled by is fear. And I'm, 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 I'm sensing what you're describing is um, a case. And, and see if this works with, with kind of your work with Job. So, so, so Job has, has practiced his self-talk. He's had his, you know, religious influence. He's had his, he's got his family. He's got, he's got things going and, and something ruptures his security, his safety. And now there's this fear, everything that he had predicated all of that on, he's now afraid of losing that. And what would it mean? So if he's lost uh, his sense of here's how God operates in the world, or here's how, here's what I had expected uh, my family would provide. And here's, Here's kind of how I figure my health would, would remain. And now you take those things away. And really what's left is fear and in, 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 in an attempt to hold on to those things. Segway to chapter three, his look toward uncreation is, uh, um, I, I, I can't put it together. I got to go back. We, we got to go back to zero. We got to go back to somewhere where I can reconstitute something. So in that poetic description, it's I've got to go back and find out um, if if what I need personally is some sense of safety, security. I need I need some awareness of how the world works. And that's your reference to he's got to find the face of God, because somewhere along the way, uh, the outworking of his uh, received uh, vision of God, that is how he understood God, has has been ruptured by these events and the fear has has it been a provocation? Is that is that is that anywhere close? I think so. I think it's <coughs> I think it's spot on. In fact, I think what we see in Job chapter three, I, I really like Job chapter three for this reason. I think it bespeaks an honesty. And here's kudos to Job. All right, kudos to Job. Now I know earlier his wife was saying, look. Uh, it's time. Just let's finish this off, whatever you want to do, but just curse God and die. And Job calls her a fool. Okay, we've discussed that as to what it's like to watch someone suffer, and you can't change it. Now, right. we get into chapter 3, 
the thing that I really like about the chapter is Job's honesty. You know, faith, I, I hear it all the time, and you do too. It, it, it may be an old wives' tale. It may just be bad theology. I'm not sure. But when people say, well, we're not supposed to question God. Well, let's go to the cross for just a moment, okay? And let's go to the perfect one as he asked the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So if we're going to espouse, especially in the context of my life is falling apart, if we're going to espouse that we're not supposed to question God, in my opinion, that reeks of an anti-biblical domestication. Mm-hmm. It is an attempt to say something that God has never, not only has God never said it, but he's done otherwise on the cross when he questions, why have you forsaken me? So when we back up then and look at chapter three, you are spot on. I find myself actually quite proud of Job, and here's why. Instead of walking away, instead of letting his self-talk dictate a significant isolation, and a lot of pastors can do that. A lot of pastors, mm-hmm. boy, we can get isolated and yes. hurt, especially if we get angry, egos, whatever the case may be. But, you know, for some reason, this individual down the street, he's really got it going on. Evidently, I don't. Therefore, I have uh, acclimated myself to this place of pain. What I've said is this is my new normal, and we've bought into the lie, the bill of goods the devil has sold us, which is you're over. You can't do it. You're no good. Now, Job does not do that. Job rather gets up on top of his house and screams at the top of his lungs, this is not the God that I know. Yes. I like that because God is big enough to handle that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So if if we can can identify uh, that certainly Job is angry, rooted in the the fear of what might be, he might be losing, before we get to you know, that trajectory or we, we move toward, you know, talking about forgiveness, let's, let's, uh, how did his friends help him in the midst of his anger? What were, what were, what were their offerings? So if we've identified that, that, that anger is a theme in Job, mm-hmm. <clears throat> what, uh, what are some ways that we kind of get a look, if you will, through the eyes of Job's friends to see how, common or, or what some common ways that we look at or we perceive anger in another? Well, the first thing that I've got to say is we've got to contextualize with the the personage of Job, the way Job is presented. And here's what I mean. Early on in chapter one, it becomes very obvious that Job is a mature spiritually, religiously mature individual, not perfect by any means, but he does have a sense of maturity. Now, that's important, and here's why. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about that which the friends brought to the table. Okay, let's do that. In chapter two, they show up, and they sit with him, and they're silent. We've talked about that. 
that's a good thing because now you've got the ministry of presence that that allows Job uh, the sense of uh, being befriended and yet not having to perform. I don't have to say anything. I don't right now. All I can do is what I'm doing here in the moment. Now, when you move on beyond that and we get into the dialogue section and now again, we've got to see this through the lens of maturity because Job allows the friends to challenge him. And Job is not unable, he is not insufficient as it relates to responding by way of doctrinal and theological. Hold now, on. Let me, let, me, let me interrupt you just a second. Okay. I think you hit a point that needs needs a, a, some good amplification. So I'm going to maybe throw you a softball. Okay. You, you are equating relationally maturity with the with the practice of allowing friends to challenge. <laughs> now now listen, that's an insight. Because, you know, in, in, our, in our climate, if, if you're challenged and if, let's, if I challenge you in the current climate and you don't respond, let's say as Job did with a little back and forth, uh, instead you whine, you, you complain, um, you're a snowflake. Mm. And, and so there isn't a lot of evident maturity that we see around us. And I hate to say it, but even in churches, even in those relationships where we're supposed to uh, take Jesus's uh, shift when he talks to the disciples, I no longer call you my slaves or my servants. I call you my friends. I mean, you know, there was an open challenge to Jesus after the confession at um, Caesarea Philippi. And uh, Peter, there, there isn't any more challenge, uh, frankly, uh, straight to Jesus than Peter's, uh, no, 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 it's not going to happen this way. And so, um, you know, we can, we can retrospectively consider Peter ignorant and that sort of thing, but contextually, he was actually uh, exerting a little fear over the vision he had had. And Jesus just ruptured the vision that he had. And he had a little anger about that. And he had a little fear about that. So he's kind of recapitulating Job in that moment. But right there, there's the friendship that allows a challenge. And I'm just not sure that that, there, that we'll ever, ever, ever move terribly forward, any of us, if we don't have relationships where we allow challenge. Yes, I, I've got to tell you that... Um I'm a bit overwhelmed right now. Let, let me tell you what. I think what you did is you, you, you used the term softball. You have set the table for about three podcasts, I think. Mm-hmm. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do the best I can to say yes, yes, and yes. So there's my answers. I'm through with that. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I do want to make a point before I before I uh, wade in here. You and I are talking about the same things, but we're talking in different timeline. What I'm doing is I'm going back. I'm past tense with Job and saying that there existed within him 
a willingness, pursue it to his maturity to allow that to happen. You're saying, if I understood you correctly, that this has to happen. Both of those are something that I agree with, but I think it's just like when you're putting ingredients into a recipe, it's not just that we have the right ingredient. It's that when we put the ingredients in, in some cases is also very important. And so without sure. that, already existing. I don't know that Job would have done that. Now, let me back off and yeah, let's good. Good point. around what you said, all right? First of all, you're talking about relationships. You talk about the church. Let me agree. I think that the biggest problem of the church today, if I had to break it down into one sentence, I would say it is immaturity, period. We can talk about uh, all kinds of other things, but I think if you were going to, um, if you were going to go through that sentence and actually diagram it, I would say that the top would have to be the problem of immaturity. There's a lot that plays off of that. Now, sure. of that, we have people saying things like, "You'll hear it from time to time." Well, you know, I have a, uh, I know the old man upstairs, and. Um, you know, we, we've got our own thing going on. And I, I look at places like Isaiah chapter 6, holy, 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 God is three times removed, and you want to call him grandpa. No, uh, you are God's a God of relationship, but when you lose that aspect of holiness, there's a reciprocal effect in that you also lose your ability to be ashamed. Mm. And seeing that in our, in our country, mm-hmm lost. It wasn't that we just lost the ability to be ashamed. It's that first, there's always a process. There's a gestation process with women. It is nine months. There's always a process, and the process is here. No, first what you did, uh, and I might talk to the church. I don't want to pick on anyone, but I will start with myself. The first thing you have done is you have lost your vision of the holiness of God. Now, that's the major line off of which you diagram the rest of the issues that we've talked about, in this case, the the ability to be ashamed. So first and foremost, I do think you're right. Immature, you have people talking about uh, nature and God, that's how I worship. If you would have said to the Apostle Paul, look, I'm a Christian, but uh, I don't believe in going to church, Paul would have been dumbfounded. He would not have known how to respond to that. Right. That would have made absolutely no sense to him. Uh, I think what you you would have found would have been the deer in the headlights kind of thing. And so when you talk about salvation, when you talk about Christ, when you talk about uh, living within the relational dynamic of the Trinity, it's obvious you're talking about living in relationship. And so, yes, you've got imagery. And yes, to your point, we have got to come to the place where we are mature enough. And even if we're not mature enough, then we will allow it, we will be humble enough to allow it to be a growth point. Yes, faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so I'm hurting. I think you may have some messed up theology, but (laughs) I am going to, as Job would say, I will continue to engage with you because, you know, sometimes... Sometimes just being willing to sit when we speak, when we speak it, it makes it more real. I'm not saying we speak reality into existence. That's not what I'm saying. If that were the case, let me take this opportunity over the airwaves to say 
I am a millionaire. <laughs> okay, we'll not wait for that to occur. Right? <laughs> what I am saying, though, is, as you well know, to internalize it is to engage it on one level, but to say it, to speak it, is to make it real. And Job, yes, he is willing to do that. How do the friends help? Again, my argument is it goes back to the fact that Job was mature enough to allow them to do this. He is trying to work out his own theology as he's go as he goes. And yes, I do believe he was hurt during the dialogue sections. I do believe there are times when Job goes, oh my gosh, I can't believe that. And yet, and yet, if you read the end of the book, what you'll find is his way worked. Yeah. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I think that's good. I, I think uh, maybe we'll have to pick up, you know, those three podcasts on that particular subject. I just found it interesting that to, to move to the place where we want to talk about how um, Job's friends figured into uh, how he was processing his fear and his anger, that um, when you draw out, allow challenge. Uh, I just, I just have, I just found it resonant with an absence that, that uh, um, few of us will in, will intentionally cultivate relationships where we could say to someone, you know, am I, am I being a D bag, you know, um, have I missed it? Or if I start spouting something that I'm willing, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, open to any kind of pushback. And, and so I think, that you're right. I think you can't get the ingredients ahead, but I, I did think that that was kind of important as we talk about Job, that, that it, it, it figured into your um, uh, character development for Job that it, to, to refer to him as mature, uh, personally, spiritually, social, that sort of thing that, that, you know, we want to be careful if we're going to talk about anger and forgiveness here, that we don't help, we don't lead someone to get the ingredients out of order there as well. So, mm. you know, if Job, Job can actually become this iconic legalistic figure, I got to do it like Job. But if I'm leaving out the fact how mature Job is and what's, what's going on in this play, then um, I could do some, I could do some damage. Well, let me contradict myself. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> In your favor. Uh, you're absolutely right. And again, I do really think that there's a cycle here. I, I do think that there's a maturity. But but even Brown, William P. Brown, his book, Character in Crisis, as he talks about Job, that's the very thing he's talking about here. He's talking about Job's pain becoming a an opportunity for character development. And it's interesting because, of course, with Job, it comes out of crisis. And so, uh, to the point... How do they help him? First of all, they give him a stage. They do allow him to speak. Now, for some reason, they can't keep from opening their mouths, but they do allow him to speak. And can I say that I think pastorally for us, one of the things, again, that is, I believe it is germane to ministry. It, it, it is to feel like, at least, that we are separated, isolated, that kind of thing. Sometimes just being able to talk about it, having the conversation that can help. What do I do about my feelings of despair, despondency, 
uh, look what I've gone through in ministry. And here's Job again. We know that through which he has gone. How do I handle this? The first thing is his friends allowed him to talk about it. They gave him a plan. Second thing is, is that like any good friend, they were not yet. If they felt, we, we don't have anything in the text that would indicate to us that Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar have come with a negative motivation. In other words, nowhere does it say that these individuals were trying to absolutely ruin Job. Correct. That they were trying to crush him. And so they were as good friends can be. They were willing to some pushback. Perhaps it could have been done a little more gently. Nonetheless, they do give some pushback. They're not just yes men. The third thing that I see, and I think this is very important when you talk about relationships and and being willing to be challenged and be accountable, I think the third thing is this. At the end of the day, Job is the one that has to make his own conclusion. He has to because like these things so often are, regardless of the ingredients, regardless of the timing, like these things so often are, they are about what happens when Uzziah dies and Isaiah goes to the temple. He goes to the temple because The king of 40 years or so has just died, a decent king, and he has to go to the temple because he's got to find God in this thing. It's the finding of the face of God. Friends, good friends, as much as they may agree or they may disagree, ultimately they recognize the fact that they have got to let us come to our own conclusions about ourselves and God and all of those three things, I think, fit nicely into the book. Yeah. So, so if we're gonna if we're gonna kind of look at this, because I, even even when you mentioned in our last uh, time together that that you know anger and forgiveness were were pretty important components here, I, I have to confess it. Um, uh, are we talking about uh, Job experiencing forgiveness or Job forgiving his friends for their misdirected responses and their lack of, uh, uh, well, I'm going to say, I don't don't think it's a mischaracterization to say that they seem to not listen to him very well. I mean, you know, you said it, they gave him the stage and then they tried to correct him every, every, every chance they got. Now I know that goes against the idea that you're allowing someone to challenge, but in the end, it does seem that Job was exonerated uh, uh, in, in at least the sense that his friends got chastised at the end. Here's what happens. And this is something I do not believe can be overstated pastorally or otherwise. At the end of the day, end of the book, the friends are, they find themselves suspended between maybe they were really trying and God holding them accountable for their misspeak. Mm -hmm. Now that is a precarious position to be in, but to your point, let's continue this on out and maybe we can kind of get into the part of forgiveness. What we're talking about is what the text itself says. Let me read verse number eight of chapter 42. Now we're at the end of the story. And by the way, um, (laughs) like good friends can often do, 
there comes a time in the story where they are aloof. Uh, you know, they are speaking from a distance. Well, they've gotten over their time of ministry like in chapter two. And, and all of a sudden they show back up. They show back up when everything is over, when the table is set and it's time to eat kind of thing. Okay. And I find that to be telling because they only show up when there's there's no more guilt by association. You know, there came a time of these where yes. it's like, hey, Joe, we will be a friend. We will engage you in dialogue. But, hey, be ever so mindful of the fact that we know that we don't like you uh, because other people don't like you. And so right. it's over in this position where we find ourselves. Now, having said that, verse 8 says of chapter 42, now there are four Take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go. Now, he's talking to the friends. God is talking to the friends, and he says, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you, for I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Mm -hmm. Parenthetically, I might I might say here that Job does pass a test, even though he has had to, uh, I'm sure he has felt like at times he was defending himself forth and so on. At the end of the day, God says, look, what's really important is uh, what this guy has said about me, because what came out was what was inside. We can go back to self-talk. That's another time. Here's the point. Now it's restoration time. Now it's time to bring the saga to a conclusion. And once again, there is a burden that is laid upon the victim, Mm -hmm. Job. Now, where do you want to go with this victim? Uh, We can talk about that, but I think, and I'll let you dictate that perhaps today, perhaps another time, but here's the thing. Once again, Job has refused to stay outside of the city gates. He has refused to play the victim. And when you play the victim, nobody makes us play the victim. It's so funny because my wife has heard me say a hundred times in church, look, nobody makes you mad. You relinquish that to someone else. And then, of course, we'll be at home and I'll say, you know, you really make me mad. And then guess what? (laughs) Yeah, she remembered well, in this particular case, Job is able, he is able to recommit to the community. And by the way, that is part of the forgiveness. He recommits to the community because he has refused to isolate himself. Somehow, some way, he has held on in the midst of the difficulty. Didn't run from the church when he needed the church the most kind of thing. He stayed in there. He fought he cried, he lamented, and now look, now who's in charge? Job, having seen God, and that's it, and by the way, this this would bear repeating at another time as well, but Job does not get an answer. Okay, why this, why that? There are no answers, Uh, but here's what Job says at the beginning of verse 42. I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, Verse 5, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. There's that face of God. I sees you. Okay, so having done that, it's time for a regrouping, a restoration into the community. And notice Job 
has to have had forgive to be able to do that because his number one, his number one item on his agenda pursuant to what God says is, you pray for these. And by the way, he tells the friend, Joe doesn't pray for you. Sorry about you. Right, right. Yeah, this, this is serious. I mean, this, this, we're, talking about, we're talking about the fact that to live in anger and unforgiveness is it will cost us our lives. And that is too high a price to pay. I think that's what he's saying. Yeah, I, and I th- and I think that 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 really does then. Um, and and again, since we plan to do this regularly, we we can pick uh, several of these up because I I'm, I like you. I see several places we could spend a a, a lot more time. Yeah. But but what what it does point to is is that if Job doesn't get an answer for the why, and is able to move forward then the idea that we would look to Job for an answer to why is probably a mistake. Exactly. All, and, so, and, and so the function of the story is, 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 a, is a different function than actually categorizing it as a theodicy. Because a, a theodicy is a proposal to help us understand why do bad things happen to good people. And if that is not resolved in Job, now some people force it. Some people force that Job has a solution. But what you've drawn out here is, is that, that Job had to make some decisions in light of life. In light of the events of life, the way things came to him, he did not get, he did not get, um, a correlation and causality. He got instead uh, patience. He got an answer. He got the face of God, as you describe it, and and he moved moved from uh, a picture of isolation, which he could have stayed on the outside of the city gates. He could have stayed outside the community, but instead he re-entered because, well, that's where God was. And, and that that may be the indicative issue. Um, and and I've, I probably, like you as a pastor, have, have struggled with that whole question. I mean, there, there have been, you know, funeral moments. There have been crisis moments where, boy, you just, you know, we race to that theodic issue. And, and I don't, I, I, I know tons of proposals out there. They all have a problem. And it seems that 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 uh, those who suggest that uh, uh, the theotic issue is one of our own making—that is, we're trying to answer a question that is unanswerable—that we find then value in uh, what we find with each other as um, icons or representatives of God, those made in the image of God that that we live with in faithfulness. And so when he enters back in, he's actually being faithful to the, his character uh, portrayal in the early chapters, right? I mean, if he's if he's mature, if he's if he's spiritually mature, God gives him that role of spiritual maturity. Are you going to pray? We can only conclude that Job did pray for his friends. Yes, that can only be our conclusion. That's right. That's so, right. So Job. Job passed the test. It's just that 
he got caught up in at times in answering and uh, asking the wrong questions. But now let me, okay, I, I'm going to, I want to come back to what you're saying because yeah. it really sparks something in my mind. I wonder, we, we say that, that with the, the material classified as the Odyssey, we're looking for why. All right. Well, let's, let's play that line of reasoning out for just a moment. I wonder why God did not give Job an answer. Now, I'm talking about an answer by way of Western civilization. The way sure. Okay, it's Roman numeral one, letter A, so right. forth. I think he did give him an answer. I think he gave him the answer that Job needed. But as you have said, it was certainly not the question that was being asked. You know, it's funny how if you're going to get the right answer, you got to ask the right question. Yes. God does give Job is his face. And is it not true that if you look at Romans chapter 8, we, we all like to quote 828. Oh, my gosh, I've heard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, I mean, people have just butchered that verse. Well, I know everything happens for good. Well, that's not what it says, okay? Mm-hmm. But God causes all things to work together for, good for those who are yada yada in Christ, so forth. But now we've got to define the good. What is the good? The good is in verse 29 for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. The good is being conformed to the image of his son. That is God's good general will for everyone. And back up into Job. If Job went through all of this, if God had answered Job and told him why, I wonder if Job would have then therefore actually been mature enough to have said, that's not enough, I want to see the face. Or if Job would have pulled up short once he got an answer. But see, in this case, it seems like the way it plays out God will not answer him. Why? Well, why? God won't tell him the answer. Why? Why God? Well, I really don't know, but I think it's safe to at least assert that one of the reasons God does not give him an answer is because if he were to, then the progress that has been made through his pain would have been short-circuited, and really Job needed was to see the face of God and not to have an answer. Well, There's my diatribe. Well, I think uh, it it bears, you know, pointing out that if we actually take uh, the conversations in the Gospels between Jesus and his disciples or Jesus and his adversaries, it's not, it doesn't take long to figure out that Jesus generally points out that they are asking the wrong question. That's right. And, and that he, he will, and his answering a question with a question is an attempt to get them to reorient around an entirely different way to view whatever the issue at hand is. And, and if, if, if we work backwards then into what we find in, in Job, and as you described the conclusion, that really is what's going on. What's really at work is, is there is definitely this, um, here's the question I'm going to answer, Job. I wonder if, listening to you, thinking in terms of Job, it takes me back, and let me just uh, turn back a few pages here, because I want to read it. Then Job arose, robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. That's Job 1.20. Then he makes first year, this great assertion. He said, naked I came my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. All right, so Job then, when he receives 
the eventual notification, all right, your children are dead, Job. Job worships. At the end of the story, Job sees God's face. He does not have a particular answer. As if to say, at the end of the story, Job worships. Yes. The bookends seem to suggest that in life, in our ministries, in our pain, in our love, in our communities, in our communities of faith, the answer is worship. How do you overstate spontaneous, Holy Spirit-led worship Mm. on a daily basis, on a community basis. Mm. And in Job, can we overstate the importance of worship? Look, my cancer has returned the importance of worship. I'm not saying that that has to be the cute um, little feel-good response that we throw out. No, as a matter of fact, I happen to believe that in the beginning, Job did it ritualistically, and at the end, Job did it experientially, and what brought him to the place of experience beyond ritual was his wrestling. Yeah, I I think so. I think that's a... um... Yes. Yes. And I think that's actually a good point to break. Um, I think it's, I think it's a good point to break so that we can um, leave enough uh, on the table and we can pick up the trimmings and hit the cutting floor uh, and uh, give us uh, something for next month when we uh, pick this back up. What do you think? Hey, I had a, I had a great time. Listen, thank you again. And I look forward as often as we can to exploring uh, some of these insights in the book of Job because Quite frankly, I think I probably learn more than anyone else in these times. Yep. Well, listen, I appreciate your time this morning, Scott. And uh, we'll set it up and do it again, man. Sounds good. Hey, as always, thanks for listening. Uh, got a couple of uh, guests coming up next week. I'm going to interview uh, Kenneth Tanner, who I've really met only online and just following his uh, Facebook post. I- I'm, I'm going to call him a Facebook theologian. He's a Episcopal Anglican pastor in Michigan, and uh, I really look forward to having a conversation with him. We're going to talk a little bit about Advent, the transition uh, of Advent to Christmas time, and and the fact that the Christian calendar allows us or or provides opportunity for us to linger with Christmas rather than just move right on past. And then uh, I'm going to uh, talk with Pete Enns. Pete is uh, uh, a fellow I've been uh, uh, observing for uh, a number of years. Uh, I've read. Um, the Bible tells me so. I uh, can't remember. I may have read, read a, another one or two, but he and uh, Jared Byers, Bias have, have been doing the podcast, uh, The Bible for Normal People. It's really good. I really enjoy it. And uh, so uh, took a shot and see if he'd come on and, and talk about the podcast and, and uh, what intrigues him about uh, the Bible and what he means by the Bible for normal people. So I look forward to that. So those two uh uh, conversations happen next week. We'll get them posted, one of them next week, one the following week. But I want you to know about that. Looking forward to it. And uh, in the meantime, uh, just a reminder where you can find us, uh, patheological.com, patheological.net, toddlittleton.net, 
Remember, you can subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, your favorite podcatcher. really helps us out if you uh, leave a rating and review in iTunes. So you have to log in and, and leave those there. It really helps us out. And uh, again, if you have a suggestion for a podcast, for a podcast guest, for a podcast subject or theme, email me at doc.todd at gmail.com. That's D-O-C period T-O-D-D at gmail.com. And until next time, peace.